Hey guys, welcome back. We got a presentation for you this week. This one on toxic theology. Where theology goes wrong, I guess we could say. People have a similar criticism of psychology. Let's say somebody reaches a hiccup in their life and they go to see a psychologist. And more often than not, if you're just pulling names out of a hat, if you can go see a psychologist, it's probably not going to be helpful. They're not going to base their practice on anything, and they're going to throw drugs at this person, and it's not going to be that helpful. So what this person does is say, psychology in general is bad. And that's not true. Just that one psychologist, maybe how psychology is practiced. There's a problem there. There's a problem with our medication of mental issues. I do think medication is a place. I think I'll do a video on that in the near future. But it's not a criticism of psychology as a whole. And I think that's true with toxic theology. Theology is it, theology is going to be around for as long as we're humans. There's no question about that. But there are ways in which it's practiced that is, I would argue, quite unhelpful. Really unhelpful, not conducive to our nature, let's say, our nature as humans. So this presentation is going to be about that. And then what we can do if you do have a toxic relationship with theology, what you can do to make it less toxic. I never would want anybody to leave. Oh, I just moved that. I never would want anybody to leave their religion. I just want you to create a better relationship with your religion. So let's figure out what's going on here and how to do that. First things first, let me center this again. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just futzing. AnimusEmpire.com slash schedule if you guys want to reach out. You know, my goal here is to point you in a better direction. That's all. I can let you know what I do or I can point you in another direction. It may not feel like a big deal, just a few degrees, but a few degrees compounded over 10 years 20 or decades, it's going to be a huge deal. So reach out if you have, if you think you may need uh, some help. Um, and But not everybody needs help, by the way. You may not need help. I'm not saying everybody needs help. I, I just, I don't know. I was talking to a, a, a therapist the other day, and he did this thing that I hate, and when he implies that everybody needs to be in therapy, and that's not true. <laughs> not everybody needs to be in therapy. But if you kind of sense you may need some help, then I could be your guy. Okay, so outline. That's what we do here. Let you know what we're going to cover. Part one is context. What is the context for this discussion? Make like Socrates and define your terms. And I can't talk about justice and what is justice and injustice without first defining what justice is. We do the same thing with the concepts and terms around theology, toxic theology. So what's the difference between theology and psychology? We're going to go into it there. So part two, signs of toxic theology. Part three, origins of toxic theology. Part four, yeah, how, how toxic theology forms. I, I, don't, I don't think... It, I don't think it forms because of any, you know, nefarious motivations in people wanting to control, you know, that somebody 
I think that's a poor criticism of the church. And and by church, I mean the Christian church, although I think this applies to the Abrahamic religions, uh, Jewishness, <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, Muslims. But I think a lot of what I say here, well, we'll get into it. So I'm going to reference the Christian church when I'm talking about tax theology. That's just because I'm American. And America is the only country that matters. But this is going to apply to other religions as well. So origins of toxic theology, where this comes from, mythology, formation. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to let you guys know that, that, that some of the stuff I'm going to say here, I'm going to reference it, but some of the stuff I'm going to say, it's uh, it's going to be, this presentation would be way too long for me to go into and explain it, and mythology formation would be a, a presentation on its own, but I just got to put it in there to let you know that this is part of the formation of theology and toxic theology. I have references, though. And part five, the religion of psychology. That is not the psychology of religion. That really needs to be a small r, religion of psychology. But part six, religion of the self. No, that's a capital R. And the S and self, that's capital. Yeah, I think what it's the, so what we're going to do there is take a, maybe not an example of, of toxic theology, but just how to make toxic theology healthy. What would that look like? And if you have any questions, animus at animusempire.com, that we're doing this presentation, a question from a listener. She had questions about toxic theology. That, that's her term. I thought it was a great term, so I'm using it for this presentation. Uh, and look, you guys reaching out and letting me know what's going on with you, that is way better fodder for questions than <laughs> me sitting around here and just thinking what I... Uh, uh, think would be a good I idea for a lecture or a video. Let me know where you are. Let somebody know where you are. That is important. All right, part one. So let's get into the context. Let's start off with this quotation, which I think is a great quotation because it it perfectly sums up this situation, this scenario by Joseph Campbell perfectly sums up what toxic theology would be. And he says, if you're listening on Spotify, half the people in the world think the metaphors of their religious traditions are facts, and the other half contends they're not facts at all. As a result, we have people who consider themselves believers because they accept metaphors as facts, and we have others who classify themselves as atheists because they think religious metaphors are lies. So this makes us wonder what the question, or wonder, uh, what are the metaphors? What are the metaphors that he's talking about? And what does he mean by facts and lies? This is a great summary of the predicament. Um, but to tease ahead, we are going to improve upon this. We're going to insert some key phrases into this quotation to improve upon it, and then we're going to add to it. So, yeah, what's going on here? Therefore, toxic theology thinks the metaphors and traditions are facts. Or it applies them as fact. That's what toxic theology would be. You know, everybody, I know I brought up this up before, but it's, it's worth reiterating. Everybody thinks the fundamental question or a fundamental question in theology 
is do you think God exists? It, it you know it's, it's very similar with uh, the question of ghosts. People always ask you, "Oh, do you believe in ghosts? Oh, do you believe in ghosts?" That is such a bogus question. Of course, ghosts exist. The correct question is, "What do you think ghosts are?" Same thing with God. Of course, God exists. And that's the great debate between, oh, I don't know, Dinesh D'Souza or, uh, and Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. Does God exist? What a pointless debate. And I've wasted so much time caring about that question and thinking about it. <laughs> the, the, the question is, what do you think? Yeah, of course God exists. What do you think God is? we could also say the flip side, toxic atheism, which I could also do a presentation on. And a lot of the, the arguments from toxic theology and how to make it less toxic could apply to toxic atheism. The arguments wouldn't be exactly the same. They would be reverse or they would be mirror images of each other. Um, but I'm not going to go into that too much. But just try to, I mean, if you are an atheist, let's say, or if you're religious, it doesn't matter. Just in the back of your mind, think, yeah, a lot of these arguments could apply to atheism or toxic atheism. And we'll get to a good example of what toxic atheism is. It was a documentary in the early aughts that I watched and liked, but now, and I understand why the guy made it, but now looking back, I think, man, this is not very helpful at all. So toxic atheism would think that the metaphors and traditions are lies. So what does this sound like to you guys? It sounds like something we talk about a lot on this show and this channel. It sounds like a problem with concept formation, a comprehension of what psychology is, and sounds like uh, some confusion, as I implied, over the existence of God. And again, just to add some uh, groundwork here, the difference between psychology and religion. Psychology is the book. Think of it that way, and religion is the answer. The answer is in the back. So there is a, a phenomenal world that we see here and some spirit world. Some world beyond our world. And that world, that spirit world, is ultimately in charge of this one. Go get the um, the second issue of the Animus magazine. There's really only a few left. The first one's all sold out. There's only a few left of the second one, if you guys are interested. I'll probably just post the PDFs online, but the hard copy is phenomenal. Uh, there's a, a, a world here, uh, a material world, and then there is a spirit world beyond that is ultimately in control of this one. And so psychology would be the process of connecting with the spirit world the religion would be what does the spirit world consist of? So it's the process versus the belief. So what a quote ideal religion would look like is some adherence to a process, not so much the belief. I think problems in religion arise when we emphasize belief over process, and this is what people disagree over. I mean, if there's a, a religious conflict between two people, I mean, typically the religions are quite similar, like the different um, 
branches. I don't know if they're sects, but they're just, just different branches of uh, Islam. They're not fighting over how many t uh, times a day you pray. They're fighting over uh, some interpretation. Interpretation is somewhere on the line of that uh, avenue between this world and the spirit world. Um, so that would be the difference between psychology and religion. Yeah, I feel like I had something else to say here. Well, I'll come back to it. I'll get to it later. So what, what belief are we talking about exactly? Yeah, belief in a spirit world. Yeah, I kind of said this in the previous slide. Realm ultimately in charge of this realm. The first spirit world, the first gods. Not the first ones, but the first ones that we can uh, project out some record of were storm gods. Our ancestors, present-day Germany, Ice Age. And they play a bone flute with their name carved in. I know it's not technically their name, but there are markings that indicate that they are part of that bone flute, that they are part of the ceremony. They, pay the, they play the bone flute to appease the storm gods, to appease their anxiety. And we all do this. Now, atheists <laughs> out there say, well, I don't, believe in a, I don't believe in a spirit world. Yeah, but there is some world, there is some conceptual world that's ultimately in charge. So the spirit world could be concepts. The spirit world could be uh, principles. It could be uh, very popular with atheists nowadays. Your social condition, your economic condition, your family, the neighborhood you grew up in, how much money the public school received that you went to. Right? These are all spirit world. It's not doesn't have to literally be a spirit world, but just some realm, some way of looking at the world that we see here that is ultimately in charge of our condition. And we all do this. We're all going to do this. The only question is, how healthy is our practice? How healthy is the sacrifice that we make to the spirit world going to be? Those are the only questions that matter. All right, so part two, signs of toxic theology. This is not going to be conclusive, but these are the three main ones that I see. The one is it disconnects you from others. Uh, number two is it belief based on the supernatural, based is italicized there. You can believe in the supernatural. I think that's probably fine. But if your belief is based on the supernatural, not the natural world, some world beyond this one that we can't see, and by definition we can never see and never understand, and that's what your belief is based on, then that's probably going to be toxic theology there. And then three, God wants you to sacrifice your needs here and now. Your needs in this existential world for some other realm that has different rules. And hey, who cares if your needs are important to you here? It doesn't matter. This is about the rules of the realm beyond this one. These three are kind of intertwined, but let's go through them one by one. So if your theology disconnects you from others, um, if it makes you feel superior, and, and this isn't moral relativism. Yeah, I'm glad I had this point in here. This is not moral relativism to say that, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's all subjective. All values are subjective. And that's why you're not superior. 
Now, when the superior is based on some belief that you have, and it makes you metaphysically better. I mean, I know in some evangelical churches, and we're going to get to this when we talk about this documentary from 2005 that I'm going to reference. The documentary was the guy who wasn't there. Actually checked, it's on YouTube. I I would recommend that you go watch it because it's a great sign. There's great information in there, but also it's an indication of, or it's an example of toxic atheism. Um, But I know in some evangelical churches, if you even believe the wrong thing for a second, you could spend an eternity in damnation, and hell is no fun place for evangelical people. So, boy, that's really going to disconnect you from others. You're going to see, well, you're down there with your uh, bad beliefs, your evil beliefs, and we're up here. And so I'm not even going to try to connect with you. The only way that I'm ever going to connect with you is so I can convert you so you can be a good person like I am. So your concrete back uh, answers in the back of the book are correct. And that's what happened with uh, evangelical Christianity is it split off from the church because it was oppressive and then it created its own kind of oppression. It, no, it's about you and your relationship with God, your personal relationship with God, and that's very anarchistic, I guess you could say. Anarchy doesn't exist for long. When there is anarchy, you get uh, um, rows of gangs ruling a country. Look at Somalia. Look at that chopper jazz place that was in Seattle, whatever that was a few uh, summers ago. That's what happened with evangelical Christianity. So it disconnects you from others. You no longer exist to connect with other people, rather to instruct them or to turn away from them because they don't have your beliefs and they're going to go to hell. Right, number two would be yeah, a belief based on the supernatural. This demands faith. I think uh, a great example of this is the, the Next Generation episode, Who Watches the Watchers? This is my first of many references in this presentation. And it shows how a belief based on faith can, faith can be helpful in the short term, but long term, it is going to hurt you. Um, but we understand why you would base your belief on the supernatural, because rules are helpful. I talked about this in my last presentation on the dim hypothesis. Rules are helpful. And it's way more useful, at least in the short term, than no rules at all, because what no rules at all turns into is Somalia. But that doesn't mean your rules are correct, and that doesn't mean we can't they can't be improved upon. And I'm not criticizing you for having rules that are less than helpful, but let's try to create a better relationship with those rules so we can create a better relationship with theology, which is going to be fundamental to our psychological health. And yeah, this is an example of a mind-body dichotomy, something I'm going to get to in more in the next section. There's a, a, you know, we have higher beliefs, we have lower beliefs, or we have a, a higher part of ourselves, that's our morality, we have a lower part of ourselves. Typically, when we're talking about religion in the West, it's your sexuality. And so... The higher, the higher part of us needs to be there to not only direct, but also repress our lower part of us. And this leads to um, 
a lot of issues. We're going to get to this more in the next section. And then three is, uh, yeah, you got to want you to sacrifice your needs. That you want wants to sacrifice this world for an unseen world. So what I was saying there in the previous side about, about the mind dichotomy, that comes into play here because this is the explanation for sacrificing your needs in this world. I want to make this much money. I want to have this job, this status. I want a wife and kids and all this great stuff. And you say, well, that's just your selfish need here in this world. God has another plan for you, and you don't understand it because it's based on the supernatural realm. Uh, so you just need to submit to God's will. Whatever that is, of course, is based on some interpretation of, of what God's will is, and that's going to get into the origins of toxic theology, which we'll get to in the next section. So the common denominator here is the mind-body dichotomy. Toxic theology is pretty much determined by to the extent you believe in the mind-body dichotomy and apply it to your life. All right, so part three would be origins of toxic theology. Yeah, to put it another way, how the mind-body dichotomy leads to toxic theology. So first, I mean, where does the mind-body dichotomy even come from? I know I've talked about that a bunch in this channel. And one podcast I made in particular a long time ago, but I'll sum it up here. And then, so the Christian church, the origins of that. And again, I think a lot of this could be applied to the other Abrahamic religions. And then mind-body dichotomy plus the church. What happens when you take the origins of the Christian church and infuse it with the mind-body dichotomy? And then for the top-down leadership, the fear, control, power, addiction. I saw a tweet a few uh, few weeks ago. It said that, I think it was from a guy who's a Christian, and he said when people criticize Christianity, they, they don't criticize the origins of the church. They just criti criticize what Christianity has become, and I think that's mostly true. But here I'm actually going to criticize the origins of the church. I don't think it's the church's fault necessarily. They did the best they could with what they had. But you have to look at the origins of the Christian church and said, oh yeah, this is going to lead to something toxic. That was never the intention, I don't think. Especially in, in the beginning when it was, well, we'll get to it. All right, so the first thing here, mind and body dichotomy origins. So philosophical origins. I'm going to point to one origin here, which I think is really helpful. Yeah, I think this is the earliest, more explicit sign or indication of the mind-body dichotomy, and that is from Timaeus the Platonic dialogue, they talk about the formation of the earth and what what happens, that we have matter, we have base chaos of the earth and it, and it gets its form, it gets its form from above, from the Demiurge. It, the Demiurge comes down and like um, a cookie cutter, I guess you could say. It creates form out of the chaos. The, the form does not come from an organization, from a healthy organization of the chaos itself. The form comes from above. And also we can get into the, um, you know, the arguments between Heraclitus and Parmenides. Right? That's a great example of the mind-body dichotomy. We can either have change or truth, and if we have truth, we can't have change because that means the truth changes and it's not truth anymore, or we could have change uh, but not truth. Yeah, works both ways. 
go get my notes, uh, History of Philosophy, for more explication of that. And then the psychological foundation of the mind-body dichotomy is, you know, what I was just saying about the Next Generation episode, Who Watches the Watchers? Rules are useful. <laughs> I mean, even if it's a wrong rule, it's, it's more useful than having no rule at all because at least you're thinking about where the rule's coming from. If you have no rules, then the rules, uh, I mean, whoever has the most power is what makes the rule, and that's usually not helpful either. Whatever gang can kill out can kill off the most members of the other gang, they're the one who's, who's going to make the rule. Look at Somalia, right? And wasn't there even a, a, a shooting in Chop or Chaz? It took two weeks, and there's already some shooting things. Some guy died. I don't know if some guy died, but I'm pretty sure somebody was shot anyway. Not helpful. Not going to be helpful long term. All right. So the second step in the mind-body dichotomy is so the Christian church and their origins. So you look what the Christian church was, and it, and this tweet that I referenced a couple minutes ago, it, it's correct. You know, it's very difficult to to criticize the early Christian church because it was essentially group therapy. That's all it was. It was just people coming together and admitting their sins admitting where they went wrong. But what's the operative word here? Well, there's two. Admission and sins. Not the best way to do it necessarily, and this is based on the mind-body dichotomy. Jeez, now I forget. If I do it, cover in the next slide? Yeah, I think I, I cover in the, yeah, here. Okay, so, yeah, the mind-body dichotomy plus the origins of the church now you now you have a high and a low, a spiritual and a base. So now the admission of sins, right? The original Aramaic translation of sin, famously, is simply to miss the mark. You did something incorrect. But, so if you combine the mind-body dichotomy with a group of people getting together and admitting their sins, then the sin necessarily means something bad about you. It's shame versus guilt. If you do something wrong, then you're wrong. You're more likely to be wrong. So this leads to oppression. This, this leads to a high and a low. This leads to hierarchy. And then we get, inevitably, from this, and I'm not blaming the Christian church for this, that, that there was nothing else in the culture at the time to lead them in a better direction metaphysically. The only person who even came close to disabusing the mind-body dichotomy at this point is Aristotle, and he was not very popular at the fall of Rome, the origins of the Christian church. Um, the, the philosophy that was popular is Stoicism, which of course is based on the mind-body dichotomy, which has of course heavily influenced the Christian church. And then this leads to, yeah, this top-down leadership, this fear, control, power addiction, um, if there's a high and a low, then inevitably you set up some interpreter of the high. He's going to tell you what God's will is. You better listen to him. And that is a huge power in people's lives. I mean, plus, you know, what the mind-body dichotomy does within an individual is it creates, it, it inevitably creates weakness because it, it pits certain parts of you against each other. If you have the sexuality part that's lower down here and this higher a spiritual, moral part, 
And ultimately, they're irreconcilable. And that's what it is. It is irreconcilable to varying degrees, to varying degrees that you accept this premise into your life. I remember in, in college, in my undergrad days, and uh, there's um, a guy who was a Catholic who I knew, and uh, he said he's never going to have sex. He's only going to have sex within the confines of marriage, and then only through a bedsheet, and then, of course, only to procreate. It's like, well, that's not a resolution of your sexuality. That is, sexuality is still bad, but I'm going to use it to create more Catholics. And hey, I'm, I'm definitely not going to have any fun because it's going to be through a betcha. And then, I know that's not all Catholics. He was pretty extreme. He was a pretty religious guy. But that's not a resolution. <laughs> that's just, well, there's this evil part of me, but it's necessary evil. So I just got to figure out a way around it without having too much fun. Um, and so this happens in family. This happens in businesses. You know, if a business is created this way, I was part of a business uh um, I, I worked for a business that was like this and it did not last long. That's like a pyramid structure versus an organic structure. You know, pyramid, the rules come on high, command and control. There's one guy in charge or maybe a group of guys in charge and you just listen to them and that's it. And it breeds communication issues. This is where we get bureaucracy. This is how the government sets up, is set up necessarily. You get manipulation of truth, you know, and it, it just leads to huge issues as opposed to a more organic structure that is more self-organizing. It's distributed. I mean, this is Amazon, right? It's it's like a, yeah, Jeff Bezos is the guy in charge, but he doesn't know what's going on in some factory or some warehouse in Duluth. You know, he puts a really smart guy in charge of that, and that really smart guy is in charge of, of that factory. And there's sub organizations i'm sure within that factory or or warehouse whatever it is <clears throat> and this of course breeds uh you know healthy communication you know it's the difference like if somebody makes a mistake <clears throat> yeah you can tell what kind of company you work for what kind of kind of company you have set up because if there is a mistake in a pyramid top down kind of leadership company and you talk about it or you admit to it then it's going to be punished as opposed to in a more organic self-organizing company. You're like, oh good, let, let's suss out these mistakes because mistakes happen. They're a part of life. And it's not whether we make the mistakes, the mistakes, but how quickly we, we can suss them out and talk about them and, and correct them and rectify them. So that's what the church became. It became this top-down leadership, and necessarily so based on the implicit philosophy of these group therapy sessions. Um, man, again, I feel like I have something else to say here, but uh, scale will go on. So part four is mythology formation. I'm just going to kind of breeze through this because, uh, yeah, I, I know I talk about um, <laughs> basing your... Uh, beliefs on faith not that helpful but it's some of the stuff you're gonna have to take on faith but i'm gonna give references I, I do think a lot of this stuff has been hashed out really well mostly by jung so i'm gonna reference that but how, how does how, how do uh, mythologies form because we got to look at how uh, religious stories develop in the first place so let's look at mythology formation really quick because i think this is going to come in in the conclusion where i land the plane so it, it uh, happens in three stages we look at stars, star patterns, then we uh, project our archetypal 
patterns onto those star patterns, and we do this through the use of symbols. That sounded like a lap. Let's tease it apart a little. So star movements are really important, you know, for, for uh, appeasing the storm gods, right? The first religion, let's just say, for the sake of simplicity, the first religion is trying to quell the storm gods. Well, geez, you know, you look up at the stars enough, and, uh, you know, if you ever go to a place with uh, very little light pollution, we were in Joshua Tree last year, and it was, you know, it's just a completely different... It's insane. Um, you start to notice that there are, uh, hey, storm gods show up when the stars are in a certain pattern. Well, this is going to be really helpful to our survival to track star patterns. And a great way to do that is, is through stories. And that's what myths are. They convey this information. And this is uh, demarcated very well in Hamlet's Mill. Now, it's not the only book that does this, but it talks about Hamlet. And Hamlet, what it does is, I mean, Shakespeare's rendition of Hamlet was not the first one. There are others like that. And there are definite symbols in this story that actually chart the procession of the equinox. That's what or the procession of the stars, yeah, the procession of the equinox, that's what the mill in Hamlet is. That's so it's called Hamlet's Mill. Um, which doesn't mean that our myths are just based on stars and therefore they're of no importance at all. It's just tracking star patterns. No. that That is, this is the basis of our mythology. But what are we doing? We're still projecting our archetypes and our symbols, so it still means something, even though the basis was just in tracking star patterns, which we don't need to care about so much anymore. But that doesn't make the story any less uh, important. In fact, it makes it very important to us because it is based on our archetypes. And of course, what an archetype is, talked about this a bunch before, so I'm not going to go too much into it now. It's when a meme becomes a gene, when idea is so much a part of a species that it actually becomes part of the species. So the prairie dog example, if they could articulate their archetypes, I guarantee two of them would be a prairie dog or would be a good hunter. You know, some uh, prairie dog that was a really good uh, vole hunter. I don't know. Or a prairie dog that was really good at calling to the other prairie dogs to let them know that a predator is near so they can all scurry into their holes. Like the Oedipus complex, this is an archetype in us because we're a sexually dimorphic species. So a lot of our survival, a lot of a man's survival depends on how well he can get along with other men who are particularly of higher status, more powerful. So we're going to have something called an Oedipus complex. If you want more clarification on this and how where archetypes come from, look at Jung, volume 8. 9.11.12, we have those notes at msempire.com for you. They are not uh, a replacement for reading Young. They're just a supplement. Parts of Young can get difficult, so we have supplements there to help guide you through it. And then the third part of mythology formation is symbols. So we use symbols to convey the unknown. So we have these archetypes, and we create symbols to... Um, what am I trying to say? To communicate the archetypes. So some symbols that we use are, you know, separation from parents, initiation, marriage, 
union of opposites, mother, father, child, God, devil, wise old man. These are all symbols. These are all things that we kind of get are there. It's like a variable. We kind of know the value of the symbol based on the context of the story. And so, yeah, symbol formation here is, um, yeah, it just fulfills the need to express. Like we need, we, we need to express something here, but we don't yet know what it is. Yeah, they're the harbingers of future knowledge. Think of it as a philosophical variable. And if you want any help here, um, yeah, go to Jung, Volume 5, 9.2 and 14, if you want to look at mythology formation and how this works. So let's look at some modern symbols, if this is all a little bit wonky for you. So a cabal. People uh, who have conspiracy theories, and I'm not, not saying every conspiracy, I'm not using that as a, a pejorative, but people have conspiracy theories. They have a conspiracy of, a theory of a conspiracy that's happening. That's fine. You can have that. The question is, how correct is it? It's, it's not incorrect just because it's a conspiracy theory. But they use a term called a cabal. And this is a projection. This is a symbol that we use to explain what's going on. Let's say somebody who is upset with what's going on in the government and how they're handling the vaccine issue. Now, from a certain perspective, you could look at what's going on and say, well, this would make a lot of sense if there is a cabal, a secret cabal that's trying to control the country and control people. That is an explanation for, in a sense, bureaucracy. But we don't understand the bureaucracy. We, we may not understand uh, the power dynamics involved and the psychology involved. So we just call it a cabal. That is a useful symbol. Is it exactly accurate? I would argue no. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there is a cabal. But sometimes it's not. White supremacy. That's another symbol. I think people use this. You know, it became very evident to people... Um, when, uh, you know, here in California at the recall election, it was um, Larry Elder against uh, Gavin Newsom. And people called Larry Elder, who's a black guy, they called him a white supremacist. And, of course, people on the right just had a conniption about this. And, you know, understandably so. It's on, on the face of it, it's ridiculous. But what does white supremacy mean, I think, to somebody who uses it? And I'm not trying to validate any of these terms, by the way. But we have to understand why people use these, and these are modern symbol formations. So I think white supremacy, how it's used, is people think that we we live in a society that, that doesn't defend their values, that the majority of the people don't have their values. Now, I think when people use the term white supremacy, that's a good thing. We don't want your values because that's neo-Marxism, even though you've never read a word of Marx, <laughs> of course, but... So they'll use the term white supremacy to mean we live in this society where, yeah, my values are not given a voice. But that's a healthy symbol, white supremacy. That's a healthy symbol. And, you know, there's a racial uh, instigation there, which is, you know, really powerful. Uh, you know, leads to war a lot of times, but it can be really powerful. Pedophiles, similar. We, we talk about pedophiles, pedophiles in government. And look, you can look at uh, pedophiles in government, and there have been busted pedophile rings. Um, but really not to the extent where you can say, okay, pedophiles are in charge of the cabal. Let's say pedophiles and cabal, that those are often linked up. 
But I think pedophiles, the fact that pedophiles are in government, are part of the deep state, and are working to um, infect our children, let's say, I think this is a symbol for the sexualization of children. And that's what talking about, like the trans movement, talking about the trans movement to, to children who are yet to be sexual in second grade. I mean, I think that's abuse. And if you're trans, I think that's fine. You know, you, you got to do what you, know, what you think is a good thing to do for you. But when it comes to talking about that stuff with children, that's an issue, just like race, right? Because children are not racial. I mean, you have your uh, kid who has a black friend and she'll say something like, oh yeah, Susie, her skin's a little darker. That's all they'll notice. It just is not within the realm of a child. And so I would say it's technically child abuse. Now, to what extent? I don't know. But it's technically child abuse to say, oh, yeah, well, Susie, you know, she's black. And, you know, she comes from an oppressed minority. And then, of course, you introduce this whole power dynamic into that relationship. And that's that's abusive. That That is uh, putting issues on a child that they cannot understand and they cannot deal with like sex storks right storks is another modern symbol are you lying to a kid when you say that babies are delivered by storks i don't think you are i think that's the truth you are putting it in a way that a child that a non-sexual being could understand so i think storks are you know really helpful tool really helpful symbol philosophical variable right solve for x is the same thing but this is the philosophical version of it um, like santa claus that's another really powerful symbol which again i don't think any child really believes in i, I mean in, in my experience it's uh, children play along with it because they think it's a fun game but santa is a great symbol for our market economy for our industrialized economy Yeah, we live in this world where it's almost as if there's this magical guy who lives in the North Pole who creates all these toys in some factory with elves and can fly around in one night and deliver toys to all the children. That is a symbol for modern industrialization. Of course, Santa never took on... I mean, Santa existed before modern industrialization, but he never took on the form that he did that we know him now until the 19th century. Anxiety and anger, right? These these are symbols that I use. I mean, what is anxiety? What is anger? These are just concepts. A word is a symbol. It's a concept. To explain these psychological processes, these phenomenological psychological processes. I mean, if I, when I say anxiety, I mean, that's not necessarily a real thing. I mean, we have to know way more about neuroscience. And, um, you know, we, we know something about it. We definitely know something about anxiety and anger. We can look at the HPA complex and look at what emotional regulation is. It's the infusion of your HPA complex, your amygdala, with your prefrontal cortex. Right? It's not the quelling. Right? Another um, nail in the coffin of the mind-body dichotomy. It's not the, uh, the the prefrontal cortex coming and quelling the amygdala. That's not what happens. If anything, the, the, the stronger your prefrontal cortex, you can actually instigate the amygdala. But that leads to better emotional regulation because you're infusing your thought with it. You're, in a sense, as Jung would say, you're differentiating the, the amygdala, your, your feeling. You're differentiating your affect. 
So I use symbols all the time. And, you know, we're going to develop technology at one point, probably not in my lifetime, but we're going to develop technology at one point where we don't have to use anxiety and anger anymore. These, these terms and a lot of my ideas will be outdated. Good. That is the natural progression. And I think that's why people watch Alex Jones and Kanye. And we get, um, we get uh, hypnotized by these guys. Not, not a bad thing. But these guys are modern shamans. They seamlessly go from talking about something real to symbols. Back to something that's real. And it just, it, it envelops us. It's really powerful. That's why we hook onto these things. I, I did a podcast about that a while ago. Alex and Jones and Kanye, the modern shamans. That, that's how it looks. And we could feel ourselves, right? We feel ourselves get... Uh, get um yeah we're we're totally enwrapped in it okay so that's pathology formation that's simple formation so let's look at the religion of psychology again not the psychology of religion so this has been broken down plenty of times i'm not going to go too far into it now i'm just going to use this again to land the plane in the last section but a lot of these examples are from that movie I referenced, that documentary I referenced from the early aughts, the guy who wasn't there. Yeah, go find it on YouTube. And these are, you look at these and you say, well, this is Jesus. Yes, this is Jesus. This is also other mythological figures. I don't know. The point of this documentary was to say that Jesus never actually existed. I don't think that's true. I think Jesus definitely existed, and he was one guy. I'm not an expert on this, but that's my conclusion. But we mythologize this guy, and rightly so. But these are all symbols in a story that help us understand fundamental conditions of being a human. You know, this is Jesus, but this is also uh, Baal. This is uh, Osiris. This is Thor, Mithras, Dionysus. Zoroaster, the virgin birth, which means, hey, you come from a good woman, or a family of good stock, or Mary is a noble woman. Stars appear at birth. Again, we have the stars, which is the foundation of myth in the first place. This signifies an important event. Heal the sick, cast out demons. That's all pretty obvious, right? Snake conquered. You conquered your lower parts. What do you talk about? You, you put a pin in your snake. Not that snake, the inner snake. Communion. This is just sitting around a table eating. Connection. That I mean, communion is group therapy and how food connects us. The crucifixion, of course, is the reconciliation of opposites. The resurrection is how you are... Re so to crucify yourself, to reconcile your opposites, that's suffering, of course. The resurrection is how you elevate to a new status in life after you crucify yourself, after you reconcile your opposites. And then you ascend, right? You ascend up to a higher realm, you gain status. You have a better understanding of, of your worlds. This is not just Jesus. This is other uh, pre-Christian gods or mythological figures. Now, does this make Jesus' story less important? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And we're going to go back to the, the Joseph Campbell quotation for an answer to that. And we're going to add on to it for an answer. So the main symbols of psychology, I would say, if we're going to put these terms, God, Savior, Cross, Devil, Hell, in a psychological context, 
and this is from Jung as well, God is your unconscious. It's reality. Is it reality? Is it your unconscious? Or is it some relationship between your unconscious and reality? I mean, we, as much as I love Aristotle and, uh, you know, we love to live in this world where we think that our perceptions of the world are the actual world, and that's not necessarily true. Now, you can take the Kantian interpretation of that and say, well, then that means we can never know reality. Well, I don't think that's true either. Jung's genius is to take what Kant said and render it psychological and say, yes, our emotions, you know, greatly map onto our perceptions and they inform what we see, of course. But we need to submit ourselves to a process to regulate, to better render our emotions. And this is what happened in Job, you know, my favorite book of the Bible. I did a podcast on that. Go check it out. So that's what's ultimately in control of your life, is reality and your relationship with it. Well, God seems like a great symbol. Again, we don't know. I, we don't know all the the intricacies there between your God or between reality and your relationship with it. I mean, I try to help you with stuff I know here. I'm sure there's more. So let's use a symbol to talk about it. And there's the Savior. This is regulation. This is the reconciliation of opposites and integration of your unconscious with your conscious. I think this is living out the Savior myth is to do this so you can connect with God. These are all very useful symbols. You know, I said I read through most of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament makes, makes a lot more sense to me, from my perspective, when I just replace Lord with regulation. Makes a lot of sense. That's not an accident. Then there's the cross. Cross is not singular to Christianity. Mandala has existed way before Christianity. You know, go back to Egypt. They have their own cross. This integrates our, or, yeah, this uh, signifies, or this symbolizes, not signifies, a signal or a sign is a symbol that we understand fully. We'll get to it. This symbolizes the tools that we need to use to regulate. This is where we get the King, Warrior, Magician, Lover archetypes. I did a series of this on YouTube. This is the um, the framework that I use. You know, there's well-being, I would say compassion, confidence, fatherly energy on the bottom. And then instead of left brain and right brain, because those aren't real things, <laughs> on the left there with intellect, I would say analytical or deductive reasoning. And on the right, I would say inductive reasoning but in principle it's the same i think these uh concepts aren't really precise but uh and, but this would be jung's interpretation of it you have uh you know thinking and feeling there these are the functions sensation and intuition on the bottom and top there respectively and i think uh you know jung made a good effort here but i think it's not correct it's, it's not that it isn't correct but it's just not fundamental because i can explain all these functions through emotions and how you manage those. So it's not wrong, just not as fundamental as it could be. And then we have the devil. This would be neurosis or psychosis, and that's uh, what happens when we don't regulate. And it's not the anxiety so much. Part of me wants to say that the devil is anxiety. It's not anxiety so much. It's rather our relationship with it. 
it's archaic features of the self, archaic emotions, we could say, which may not necessarily be archaic, but they feel archaic because they are unconscious and they have yet to be differentiated. So I think this, the devil is a great symbol for that. Jung would agree. And then hell would be the effect of neurosis. So what you don't uh, regulate well, you, you don't follow the path of Jesus, uh, and i.e. you don't regulate and you go to hell. Yeah, that's true. And babies come from storks. I'm not saying you're a child if you believe that, but there are forces here that are, you know, way beyond our comprehension. I think I make a really great next step here by talking about anxiety and anger and how to regulate them. But even then, there are forces here we do not understand, so creating a story out of it to help us understand it is very helpful. Yes. This is kind of a reiteration of what I said with uh, in my dim hypothesis lecture. So misintegration would be toxic theology, disintegration would be toxic atheism, and then a healthy relationship with both atheism or theology, doesn't matter what you believe, would be God exists outside of man, or God is a projection of man, but it doesn't matter if it's a projection. Well, is, is God simply imminent of the self? It, that doesn't matter, or we'll get to it. Okay, so part six. Let's go to the religion of the self. Uh, so here's where I'm going to land the plane, and it's going to be in a few slides, so try to pay attention. So let's go back to the Joseph Campbell quotation. We see in brackets there. Well, if you're listening on Spotify, there, there are brackets, and I'll insert my additions to this quotation in as a side in brackets. So to the quotation, half the people in the world think the metaphors of their religious traditions only matter that's in brackets, only matter if they were facts. And the other half contends that they are not facts at all and therefore don't matter because they're not facts. As a result, we have people who consider themselves believers because they accept metaphors as facts and we have others who classify themselves as atheists because they think, in brackets, if a metaphor isn't a fact, then it's a lie. Let's continue. This is my addition. What both sides fail to grasp is precisely what they need to connect. Both sides fail to grasp something. And boy, it's kind of, I don't know if irony is the right term, but it's exactly what they need to connect. And that is the realization that not only are the metaphors facts themselves, but they only matter because they are facts. That is because these metaphors, these facts, it's the same thing because they say something about the nature of reality and our relationship with it. It's only when we emphasize the process, therefore, through the shift from admission to connection, will the belief fade to the background? Will the emphasis on the belief fade to the background? And so, the mind-body dichotomy, that splinter in the mind of the Christian church and every church, and so the mind-body dichotomy that led to the original epistemological split between atheists and believers disappears. It disappears naturally. This is a quote from me, Hattip Joseph Campbell. So what am I saying here? We need to shift to an emphasis on the process of religion, of theology, not the belief so much. On the psychology of religion, not so much the religion, although it's technically part of religion. 
So why have we done this before? Well, very simple reason. Because we haven't delineated the process. What is the process for this connection? The process for the process of connecting with the spirit world. Because there's been no delineation of it. This we try to do here. We have anger and anxiety. Connection and boundaries. Now you've heard about connection and boundaries before. But what are, what, what are, is the connection? What is the differentiation? That's what we can help you with here. And so, uh, yeah, and so the religion of the self, that's a capital R and that's capital S, Belidat, is you submit to a process that reconciles the opposite, the transcendental function, uh, the reconciliation of your conscious and your unconscious, and this occurs through connection, not admission. Admission is part of connection. But it needs to be more than admission. And through this process, you create your own symbols. That's what's going to happen. You're, you're going to create your own symbols. And you use those symbols to connect with others because they're ultimately the same. But what you connect with others moreover, or with more, what you connect with others with more is the process by which you create your own symbols. And then through this, the self becomes its own spiritual experience. when you focus on the process. So to start, if you guys need more references, there's my book, animusempire.com slash book. I lay the foundation of those diagrams. Click up these two diagrams. The anxiety and anger diagrams, how to process your emotions, how to process your psychology to get to the spirit world. There's a definite way to do it. And it is... It is definite, let me tell you. We will remove all questions. Doesn't make it easy, but we can at least make it definite and simple. So you can start there, and of course, if you have questions, animus at animusempire.com, and if you want to reach out, talk to somebody about what's going on, animusempire.com slash schedule. All right, thank you guys. And I wish you, I wish you all the joy and pain that comes from a development of a better relationship with the self.